invitation to come for the outstanding attention you've shown to every effort on my part, the encouraging words, for the hospitality, the food you have provided Janet and me while we have been here. I have to tell you, the first night I was here and singing the songs, I would have just kept on singing. I thought, what am I doing here? Let's just keep doing what we're doing. And it's been that way every single occasion. I think we're sometimes in our attitude and in our spirit nearest God when we're lifted up by these songs that we've sung, and tonight has certainly been no exception to that. I want to thank the elders. I appreciate the elders here very much for what they do, the example they set, the good work they're carrying on. It's always good to be with um, Donnie. If anybody can make me laugh, he can, and he's done some of that. That's been kind of fun. It's always good to be with them, and I appreciate the good work he and his family do. 2 Peter 3.18 tells us that we're to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I hope that all of us will continue to admonish and to edify one another and to live our lives in such a way that when we quit the walks of this life, we can be ushered into that upper and better kingdom in the presence of the Lord and praise his name forever. Thank you for a most pleasant few days. Our subject this evening concerns really the second part of the theistic evolution. But we talk about the azure blue, beyond the azure blue. Several years ago, it was actually in September of 1976, a man by the name of Antony Flew went to Texas. And there he affirmed four nights, denied two nights and affirmed two nights, there is no God. His exact expression was, I know there is no God. That was in 1976. And December 9th of 2004, nearly 30 years later, he said, I know there is a God. His belief in God was so strong because he was convinced by the complexity of DNA in our systems. Something that complex in just one cell of your body having more information than you'd find in, a, in the set of Encyclopedia Britannica's could not have happened by accident. And this atheist was made to come to the realization there has to be a God. And immediately, Richard Dawkins and others, he was in London, they began to say, well, he's old now and so he's lost his marbles. He just got old now. He's taking back everything he ever believed in and holding to positions that he shouldn't be holding to. And he affirmed to them, I'm as sane as I ever was, and I know there's a God in heaven. If atheism is true, our creator is dirt and rocks. I invite you to turn with me for a moment to Romans chapter 1, where we have not only the proof that Paul offers us for what we need to know, but also pronounces a verdict against those who don't take it seriously. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Truth there is like a huge spring, a coil. And these people are jumping on one side of it, trying to push it down, and as soon as they do, it springs up on the other side. It doesn't matter how many places they push, it continues to rise up. They try to suppress the truth. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. God spelled it out to them, just as he did to Antony Flew. For since the creation of the world, ever since that time, ever since Genesis 1, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse. When you look at this, you say, well, what about those folks in the South Sea Islands? They've never heard of Jesus. They've never seen a New Testament. What about those folks? You mean to say they're lost? Listen carefully to what this verse is saying. You don't have to get that far. They're without excuse the very minute they say we don't believe in God because they've had all the evidence they need since creation that he's there. They're judged already before you even bring up Jesus or the gospel. And then he says in verse 21, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And he goes on to talk about how they went on this downward cycle and three times he talks about how God gave them up. He gave them up, gave them up, 24, 26, and 28 in this chapter. When God gives up on a person, that's as bad as it gets. And a person can get into that condition when he doesn't take seriously the evidence that God has provided for him. If atheism is true, we're only a glob of tissue. We're just a bunch of molecules walking around. We're no different from slime. If atheism is true, there is no standard of right and wrong. Carl Sagan, the great scientist, opposed the idea of a God. And he said, it is very wrong to be cruel to animals. We should never mistreat animals. But he was pro-abortion. It was all right to murder what he would call human animals. Consistency is a rare virtue on that side of this equation. There is no sense of ought. There are no obligations. When people who have been in a hurricane or some disaster complain that the government didn't respond quickly enough, why should they respond at all? Is there some moral obligation? They're arguing as though there's some moral obligation to do something when someone suffers. But if there's no God, where does that come from? You respond if you want to, but you don't have to. Further, death ends it all. Plutarch, in his famous lives, tells of an occasion where three men were very close. One died. The other two went over to his place, and they looked at his body, and they examined it, and they said, he looks like everything's all here. Maybe it's been a mistake. So they pick him up, stand him up, let him go, and he just collapses to the floor. I said, well, let's try it again. They, they rough him up a little, trying to make sure he's awake, really good, and stand him up. He flops on the floor again. They put him back on the couch, and they say, 
maybe something's missing inside. Yes, something's missing inside. That's James 2.26. The, the body without the spirit is dead. But people who don't believe in God can't understand that. I don't know how they can even understand death because the New Testament explains it. Atheism does not. And then if atheism is true, there is no justice. Asaph in Psalm 73 is a frustrated, righteous man. He looks around at all the rich who are wicked. And he says, these rich folks, they have no pains. They have all the luxuries that anybody could hope to have. Four chariot garages, that sort of thing. They prosper. When they die, there's no special pain in their death. They have it made. They live and they die and nothing ever happens to them. And he said, look at me. Going through all these trials because I'm serving God. And he said, when I considered this, my feet almost slipped until I went to the sanctuary and I considered their end and I realized the best is yet to come. They won't be on the receiving end of that, but I will be if I maintain my relationship with God. Now, if atheism is false, our creator is God. That's the affirmation of Genesis 1, isn't it? Our creator is God. If atheism is false, we have purpose here. Ecclesiastes 12, Remember now your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, the difficult days come, when the years draw near, when you say, I have no pleasure in them. In verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. This is your purpose for being here. Fear God, show Him the respect, the awe, the obedience He demands. It's His by right. He is our Creator. Fear God. Keep His commandments. You do this and you've done your duty. This is your purpose for being in the world. This is your all. And then he says in 14, For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. If atheism is false, we're accountable to a standard of right and wrong. Abraham says to God concerning Sodom and Gomorrah, Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. We may not understand all that God has done. One thing we do know, everything God does is right. And then also there is a sense of ought if atheism is false. 2 Corinthians 5.10 we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That thought should arrest the attention of every living soul. We will stand before our Creator and give an account for the deeds done in this body, whether good or bad. Then verse 11 Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We not only are concerned ourselves, we want others to be concerned. We want them to be saved. We persuade men, but we're well known to God and also trust are well known in your consciences. If atheism is false, death is just the beginning. I marvel at what Paul did. The change in his life alone 
the persecutions he endured, the attitude in which he never gave up, he never slacked, he never stopped until death forced his hand. In Philippians 1, during his first Roman imprisonment, he writes to the Philippians probably very near the end of that first Roman imprisonment. And he says, for me to live is Christ. You want to know what makes me tick? What I am, what I think about, what I do. Just say the word Christ and that summarizes it. That's my field of study. That's my specialty. That's what I major in. For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. G-A-I-N. Gain. Who but a Christian can honestly say, to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. He uses a triple superlative here, which is very far better. You can't do that in language. He does it. And he's saying, you can't have anything you could offer me in this world to persuade me to want to stay here and not go to be with my Lord. It is very far better. If atheism is false, there will be justice for all. We're told in 2 Thessalonians 1.8 concerning the Lord's coming, it will be in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this begins to right some of the wrongs and the injustices that we see in this world. Hitler did all that he did leading up to and all through World War II without ever once having to face those people whose lives and whose families he so utterly destroyed and decimated. He never was held accountable in this world for anything he ever said or did. He put the gun to his head, he shot himself, and that was it for Hitler. His life ended. He saw no weeping families, no people who threatened him, no people who wanted to lay their hands on him. He simply killed himself. One of his chief men was Adolf Eichmann, who said that he would go to his grave just as they were ready to hang him for war crimes, thankful that he had helped at least five to six million Jews perish in the gas chambers and burn their bodies for fertilizer. He would perish with joy that he had done such a thing as that. During the Nuremberg trials, shortly after World War II, Robert Jackson, United States attorney, argued before these people, some of whom were alive and were being tried for their war crimes. He said, these men should be tried on this basis, on a higher law, a higher law which rises above the provincial and the transient. Now, what is this higher law? The provincial law. The provincial law refers to the province in which they live. These men were arguing, where we lived, our province said, we ought to take these Jews and kill them. What do you do when you're in your country? You obey the laws of your land. We just simply obeyed the laws of our land. The provincial said, kill the Jews, and we did it. The temporal refers to the time when those laws were enacted. At this time, it was the right thing to do. At this place and at this time, if you had been us, you would have done the same thing. 
What Robert Jackson is arguing is there is a law that is above the provincial, the mere laws that human governments make, a law above that place, and there is a law above that time. It is timeless, and it's out of this world. And that's the law he argued that these men have violated. Now let me ask you a question. What is this law that's higher than the law of Germany during this period? Is it some other nation's law? No. They were equal to Germany in so far as their power. What law is this? There's only one law he could have been referring to. And it's this law of God that we read of just a moment ago in our New Testaments. If you had been one of these victims, or if you were standing there watching them take your mother and father away to die just for the sake of who they were born into, and they asked you later, was that right or wrong, what would you say? You'd say, that's wrong. Somebody might ask you, by what standard would you say they're wrong? Germany said do it. This time in Germany said do it. What, what would you appeal to? I believe every person in this building would appeal to the same higher law it was wrong because God said so. Isn't that the case? If you disagree with that this evening, then be sure to let me know. I've never met anyone who did. There are two alternatives that stand before us. Either there is no God and we evolved. We evolved either from eternal matter. Almost everybody rejects this view. Or we evolved from nothing. But for something to create itself, it would have to exist before it exists. And that's a little bit absurd. That's not even good nonsense. And so that means that there is a God. That's the only other option, and he's the uncaused first cause. The uncaused first cause is the one that gives us this alternative. Now, atheism's impossible task. It's impossible to prove spontaneous generation, even if rocks and dirt could be our parents. How could they create life? Spontaneous generation, Alfred Elliot said, is far from proven, and it is improbable that satisfactory proof will ever be forthcoming. Don't hold your breath on spontaneous generation. Consciousness would be coming from something that has no consciousness. How can creation outdo its creator? The rocks don't have consciousness. How can I, the product of rocks or dirt, have what it my maker doesn't have. That wouldn't make sense. Conscience comes from something that has no conscience. Can dirt give us a sense of right and wrong? You ever look at dirt and say, well, I ought not to do that anymore. That doesn't happen, does it? Human beings came from something that is not human, but why don't we see this going on today? Give me the names and addresses of people who fit into this category. People who came from something that's not human. I don't know of anybody. Now, why do I believe in God, you might ask? I suspect I believe in God for the same reasons you do. They're too numerous to list everything. I invite your careful scrutiny of just a few. When I look at the design in the human body, Psalm 139, one of the most amazing psalms that you read in the Old Testament says this, beginning in verse 14. Let me start with 13, because he's talking about what happens in the womb. 
For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. That's Psalm 139, 13. Now in 14, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. That's what we would call a little embryo in the mother's womb. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, concealed in the womb in the dark before the days of ultrasound. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they all were written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. Verse 16 is remarkable. This shows the value that God placed in his plans for this little embryo when it would grow up and fulfill his will. It was human. When you look at the design of this body, take as an illustration merely the hand. It's been a special study of mine as I've had time through the last 25 or so years to keep up with some of the progress they've made with artificial hands. I knew a preacher who, years ago, I saw him at funerals from time to time, he had lost his arm. I never asked him how he lost it, but it, it was merely one of the ones that, and I'm not making, saying anything to make fun here, his hand was the kind of hand that you would see on a mannequin in the store. It couldn't fold, it couldn't move, except as it was on the stub of the arm that had been cut. And that was the best that was done back then. They continued to work on it and to improve it. A few years ago, they wrote that here's how far they've come. At present, prosthetic hands either do not move at all or have a simple single motor grip. The University of Southampton team has designed a prototype that uses six sets of motors and gears. So each of the five fingers can move independently. You've been sitting there as I've been talking and your fingers have been moving ever so slightly and you didn't even think about it. That's how great your hand is. What a marvel that is. But further, it is hard for scientists, get this, there's going to take some special design here. It is hard for scientists to replicate hand movement as the real thing has 27 bones and can make a huge number of complex movements and actions. But the thumb was much more complicated. The human thumb can move in special ways the fingers cannot. It can rotate as well as flex and also move in a variety of different directions. When you go home tonight, take a good look at what you've taken for granted, just like I have for all these years. Get a good look at all that thumb can do and ask yourself, where did that come from? Furthermore, it can also oppose, that is, touch each of the fingers of the hand to form a pinch. To mimic this, the remedy hand uses two motors, one to allow it to rotate and one to allow it to flex. The real thumb can move in five types of ways. We've managed to create a thumb that can mimic at least two of these, which is a really exciting achievement. You know what this is telling me? After years of research, after intelligent design of the plans, after putting together the best minds they've had and experimenting on them to see what could work, 
the best they can do is something that is less than what a real human hand can do. It doesn't come close. They've come closer now. There's another hand that's later than this one, more recent than this one I've been describing. I hope they get it to where it can do everything the human hand can do, but I'm not holding my breath. But you know what will happen as soon as they do that? Somebody, I hope I'm one of those somebodies, will say, you know what that proves? Intelligent design gave us something that now is finally caught up with the original intelligent design. I know very well these attempts on their part to make something as good as this were intelligent design. They didn't happen by accident, so there's no way this one could. And it's more complex than the ones they made. That's what Psalm 139 is telling us. Proverbs 20, verse 12. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. In the ear, some folks who have a hearing problem get a cochlear transplant, implant. The electronic device, it restores partial hearing to the deaf. deaf. It's surgically implanted in the inner ear and activated by a device worn outside the ear. And you look how complicated this thing is. It took years of research, and it's a fairly recent invention. It still continues to be tweaked. But when you compare this to the ear you were born with, look at the complexity of this instrument. It's amazing. The idea of hearing sound by itself is is a marvelous thought. And when you consider the eye, Proverbs 20, verse 12, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. This is intelligent design, what we have here. When we look at the camera, we see a marvelous tool. We know it didn't happen as a result of an explosion in some kind of metal shop. We know intelligent design went into the camera and has been improved ever since the days just before the Civil War. When you look at the actual eye with which you can see, the automatic adjustments it makes, all the things involved in seeing. Here's what Charles Darwin said about the eye. He couldn't sleep at night because of the eye. Charles Darwin wrote, To suppose that the eye, with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration, could have been formed by natural selection, seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. It's absurd to think that natural selection created the eye. How could that be? Well, I find it interesting that on a number of scores, Darwin came short of proving what he wanted to prove even to those who agree with him. Now, this is my copy of Darwin, The Origin of Species, his famous book, with a foreword, an introduction by W.R. Thompson. On page 170 of this book, we have the quote that I've just given you here, or 167, I should say. On page 170, he goes on to say, speaking of this eye, 
let this process, this process of change, it just keeps coming, go on for millions of years, and during each year on millions of individuals of many kinds, and may we not believe. Now notice, this is a matter of faith with him. Not faith in God, but faith in what he has concluded. May we not believe. Well, that's what we say. May we not believe that a living optical instrument might thus be formed as superior to one of glass as the works of the Creator are to those of man. In other words, given enough time, maybe the eye could come about. That's all we can hope for. Well, you can see that while that's not very satisfying to anybody who thinks about it, and certainly even not, not, not even to those who were his friends. When Thompson wrote in his book, introducing this book after so many years that it had been in print. He said in the last part of the first paragraph, but I am not satisfied that Darwin proved his point or that his influence in scientific and public thinking has been beneficial. He didn't prove his point, and I'm not convinced that it's even been a beneficial thing. That's on page 7 of the introduction. On page 19, he goes further. And he says, on the other hand, it does appear to me in the first place that Darwin in the origin was not able to produce paleontological evidence sufficient to, produce his, to pr prove his views, but that the evidence he did produce was adverse to them. Now let that sink in deeply. Darwin not only didn't prove his views on the paleontological evidence, evidence of bones and so on, but what he did find was contrary to what he was affirming. Why? And I may note that the position is not notably different today. It still hasn't been proven. It's still antithetical to what he claimed. The modern Darwinian paleontologists are obliged, just like their predecessors like Darwin, to water down the facts with subsidiary hypotheses, which, however plausible, are in the nature of things unverifiable. And he goes on to talk about how some of them were so dishonest, they gave us the Piltdown hoax and other things where they joined animal bones with people's bones, trying to say, now we have found the missing link. This must have been Cro-Magnon man. Isn't this amazing? Darwin didn't even prove his position to those who agree with him. And yet, what's the point? Well, we have to agree with him because the other alternative is God. That's neither smart nor honest. Now, as you look at Ezekiel 37, verses 6 through 10, the design in the human body is given an illustration form concerning the dry bones. The dry bones are the children of Israel, the Jews, in Babylonian captivity. And they're likened to dry bones. Now, if you have a bone that's moist, maybe you can get some kind of life out of it, but these are dry bones. Their hopes in Babylon are blasted. They think they'll never come home. That's the point of the passage. But in describing this point, Look at what he says. Verse 6, I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live. You know, verse 6 shows it takes quite a lot to get something that was not alive to become alive. Look at all that's involved there, and that's just a small summary of it. Then you shall know that I'm the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, Ezekiel says, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and suddenly a rattling of the bones came together, bone to bone, and indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them. The skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Remember, we sang the song, the foot bone connected to the ankle bone, and so on. And that's where, this is where that song comes from. Also, he said to me, prophesy 
to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on thee slain. See, they've been put together. The joints are connected, but they're not alive yet. Breathe on these that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet an exceedingly great army. As applications in verse 11 and following. Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. While they're in exile, they're saying, our bones are dry. Our hope is lost. We're ourselves cut off. And God is saying, no, it's not. I'm going to put your bones back together. I'm going to put sinews on those, give you blood vessels. I'm going to put you back together, breathe the life in you, and you're going to become my people once again in your homeland. But when he talks about this, giving renewed hope for them, secondarily, he's saying something about the wisdom of God and his power. It wouldn't surprise us that God could do this with these exiles because of what he's done with the human body starting in Genesis 1 and 2. It's not that surprising, is it? Science Digest in 81 wrote, A pair of pliers, a chainsaw, or even a missile guidance system doesn't approach the lowest parasitic worm in internal complexity. The human-made world is not nearly as intricate as the natural world. David's problem in Psalm 8 was not that he had an issue believing in God. David's problem in Psalm 8 is in believing that God could have anything to do with someone so lowly as he. O Lord, how excellent, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. He's content to let the babes' words defend his honor. And then when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him? And then in the Hebrew parallelism where he states the same thing in the second stitch that he did in the first, who is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man? Different way of saying the same thing, that you visit him. You have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. This is what David's problem was. The powerful creator shows interest in us. Yes, he shows interest in us. No one can doubt, however, the design in the universe. Now, we have three options. It could be that blind chance is what brought us here. Can't take it. Somebody says, I believe in a big bang. We all arrived here by chance, by random processes. Well, if that's the case, then your brain and your thought processes are the thought of randomness, and why should I believe anything you say? That has no credibility to it. David Hume said, chance is, our, is, is only our ignorance of real causes. That's pretty amazing for a man who was an unbeliever. Charles Darwin said, I cannot look at the universe as a result of blind chance. Charles Darwin? Quantum physics is certainly imposing, but an inner voice tells me that it is not yet the real thing. I, at any rate, am convinced he's not playing at the dice, Albert Einstein said. You go out to um, the Dakotas and you see Mount Rushmore. And you see the carvings of these four great presidents. And the guide says, well, I'm glad to see you today and I want you to know that the way this came about 
was windstorm. This was once just one big solid rock, had nothing on it, but that windstorm came, it just blew it. The sand hit some of those pieces, and here it is. And you'd say, we need a little bit better guide here, don't we? Nobody would believe such a thing. And yet, just our human bodies, not to mention all the earth and everything else God has given us, that is infinitely more complex. People say that just happened. They wouldn't think about saying that at Mount Rushmore. But they said about things that are before us every day that are infinitely more complex than Mount Rushmore. Go figure. And then when you consider the second option is that it created itself. Well, the Dutch botanist Hugo de Free, an evolutionist, said natural selection may explain the survival of the fittest. It doesn't, but he said it cannot explain the arrival of the fittest. How's it going to get here to start with? So it didn't create itself. So if it's not blind chance, and it's not by self-creation, because it had to exist to create itself, but it's already created if it exists, you see, then that leaves God. It was acted upon by an all-powerful force outside of itself. This is what we call cause and effect. We see it in a clock. I feel pretty sure when I look at that clock on the wall, and yes, I do see it, that someone made that clock. I don't take the view you walked in one day and someone had spilled a glass of water and all of a sudden it turned into that clock and somehow or other bounced up there and it keeps perfect time. But that's what the universe does. I used to marvel when the astronauts would come down and they were predicting the exact second when they were to hit the ocean. They said one, zero, and they said it's down. What is more precise? And we look at the seasons. We could just go on and on. When we look at a house, Hebrews 3 verse 4, for every house is built by someone. They didn't just happen. But he who built all things is God. And then when you consider the universe. Psalm 19. Psalm 19, the first four verses. The heavens declare the glory of God. How can that be if he had nothing to do with it? And the firmament shows his handiwork. Day into day utter speech, and night into night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out throughout, through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Without even speaking, every day we watch the planets, we watch the sun, the moon, the stars. And he says, without even saying a word, they give more than eloquent testimony that there is a divine creator who placed us here, regulated our movements, and caused us to stand as witnesses to the one who designed and created us. We've talked about the earth for a little while. The moon is the perfect size and distance from the earth, creating the proper gravitational pull, creating the ocean tides, the movement so that the oceans don't stagnate, restraining the oceans from spilling over the continents. Water is chemically inert, it won't move, and yet you can have water that starts at the bottom and goes to the top of a tree that's hundreds of feet tall. How in the world did anyone design this? Water enables food, medicines, and minerals to be absorbed and used by the body. It has a unique surface tension. It freezes from the top down and floats so that 
fish can live below it. 97% of Earth's water is in the oceans, but there is a system designed to remove the salt. When it evaporates, it goes upward toward the clouds, it leaves the salt behind, the clouds take it, take it over the earth, dump it again, and that's God's system to cleanse it and to keep it pure. And we see in Ecclesiastes 1.7, this very thing referred to, all the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from, whence the rivers, from which the rivers come, there they return again. Yes, you look at all these things, that we have, that God has done, and you say, as Antony Flew had to conclude, a superintelligence is the only good explanation for the origin of life and the complexity of nature. One more thing, we're through. During the later 1800s in Britain, there was a Baptist preacher by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was one of the most popular speakers and preachers in his days. He died at a very early age. And one thing that caused him to die was what he referred to as the downgrade controversy. There's a whole lesson we could learn from this, but we have maybe one minute that I'll take. As Darwinism began to be taught in the theological seminaries, and to be taught in the schools, people began compromising with Scripture, as we've referred to during this short series. As they did, churches started saying, well, Genesis is not really true. They started explaining away all that God had done, as if God had no hand to play in this at all. Various other false teachings began to be spread at that point, and it absolutely decimated their faith in God. By the time World War I was fought, they went to war, but they had no faith in the God who had spared them that long. After the war was over, they called World War I the war that killed God. Now, nothing can kill God, literally, but it killed faith in God. And today, these years later, hundred years later, about 2% or less of the people who live in Great Britain have anything to do with any organized religion, and it all started, it all started in what Spurgeon called this downgrade, when people stopped believing in the book that God gave us, straight from His hand, telling us how to go to heaven. That mattered nothing to them anymore. The only thing that matters now is the here and now. May God bless you with the strength, the determination, the courage to stand for what is right and don't yield. Fight it. And go to heaven when you die. If you need to obey the gospel this evening, we invite you to repent and be baptized or if in any way you need to come back to the Lord. While together we stand and sing, won't you come? I said.